Hello there, this is Gary Turner, your Value Through Vulnerability podcast host. On today's episode, I have the absolute pleasure of welcoming Mark C. Crowley, who has his own podcast called Lead from the Heart and is an international best-selling author with a book of the same name. This was a really, really fascinating conversation for me personally. And just to give you a couple of insights before you get into this conversation, although he talks from the heart, he leads from the heart. One of the thing, things that really, really resonated with me was that as much as he is this driven, heart-led leader, he made a stand. He made a stand during his career where he said, I'm not going to be the killer engagement guy. I'm going to be the lead from the heart guy. You can hear more about that particular journey and what that statement actually means, means as you go into this podcast. What I really enjoyed was Mark shared that he would set crazy super stretch goals with his team where they'd go for the budget plus 30%, plus 40%, because they were satisfied by doing great work and not just good work. And that reminds me of the, uh, the book, Good to Great by, uh, by Jim Collins. And I think this other point's really important as well, is that Mark believes that he's been seen by people that worked for him as one of the most demanding managers that they ever had. Why? Because he made it safe for them to stretch themselves. He made it safe for them to grow. They went home on a Friday, not fearing where they stood with their line manager. So that transparency, that clarity, from a place of care and indeed of love for his people actually allowed them to optimize and stretch their performance. And I use my own real life example of switching from fear to love based um, working as well um, during this podcast. So such clarity for me that Mark shares here that you know, this isn't a nice to have, it's not soft. In fact, it actually helps develop those hard metrics by leading with the heart. So get involved. I really hope that you enjoy this conversation. Um, both Mark and I would really appreciate if you offered some feedback either directly um, to he or I or indeed via the um, Apple um, iTunes uh, feedback option that would be great and in the meantime enjoy this conversation you know I'm going to be listening to this time and time again as it really is one of those podcasts that just keeps giving so uh, looking forward to hearing how you find out. Welcome to Value Through Vulnerability, a podcast dedicated to putting the human back into humanity. And I'm so excited today to welcome Mark Crowley onto the podcast, who is author of Lead from the Heart and also runs a podcast of the same name. So hi there, Mark. Hello, Gary. Uh, this is fun doing this across the pond like this, and I'm honored to be on your show. No, well, look, thank, thanks so much for sparing the time, Mark. And as we get going, for those listeners that may not know you, would you mind just giving a bit of an introduction as to sort of who you are, what your background is, and uh, you know, what are you passionate about today, Mark? Okay, so um, those are all very big questions, of course, and, and I would start by just saying that um, my fundamental belief is that the way we lead and manage people is failing, that we're doing more harm than good to not just to, to people, but inherently to organizations, and that the missing piece really is that human beings need to be managed in a way that inspires and motivates them, and I believe that all boils down to the heart. And so really for the last 10 years, I've been working on, you know, really being the Pied Piper for this message. And so, as you mentioned, I, I wrote a book called Lead from the Heart, Transformational Leadership for the 21st Century. And the foundational idea is that 
we are feeling people, we are feeling human beings. Feelings and emotions drive human behavior more than anything else. And so that means that our leadership practices need to align to that. We need to construct leadership practices that inherently and intentionally um, give people the experience of positive emotions, which we know they need in order to thrive in a sustained way. And so I'm really feel that I'm a leader of this movement, that the language of lead from the heart, and we can get into this, has been something that people instinctively, many people have instinctively thought sounded soft and weak and sentimental and spoken by somebody who doesn't fundamentally understand business. And none of that is true. And I am seeing right now, when you ask about passion, um, what I'm most passionate about is seeing that consciousness is really, truly changing and that people are embracing this, that people are using the word heart without any apology. When just two or three years ago, I was getting punches in the stomach from business people saying, yeah, man, you can't be talking like that because that's just not going to work around here. All of a sudden, people are like, whoa, wait a minute. Maybe, maybe this is right. Maybe this is what we're supposed to be doing. And so I have this, you know, this view of how the world is changing. And from my point of view, uh, we're, we're coming into a really, really significant change in how we're going to be leading and managing people at work. And so I, I see myself as, as one of the leaders of this movement. And uh, I'm happy to see that this is now resonating in a really strong way with people. No, w w wonderful. Thanks for that introduction, Mark. I, I think the thing for me that's really powerful in, in what you just communicated is that point about consciousness. And, you know, my, I myself, you know, this podcast has only been going since last May, but I was pretty unconscious. You know, I was one of those people that had the nice car, the nice house, the nice life, because we've been socialized to believe that that's what mattered. And this awakening that I had last year of, oh my God, I can, you know, I've, I've got all of these, ex these things that the world tells you success looks like, but I felt hollow mark inside, literally dead. And it was an incredible moment of consciousness raising where I just went, okay, that's what's missing. There's a great article in the New York Times that came out a few weeks ago by Charles Duhigg, and he went to his, I think, 15th year Harvard Business School uh, anniversary, you know, reunion. And he's found all these people there that were his former students, you know, his former um, uh, MBA program students. And, you know, these people are making a million two a year and miserable in their lives. And I found that just extraordinary. You know, you, you would think that Harvard would prepare these guys for the big picture of life. And in many cases, um, our business schools have taught people to, um, manipulate balance sheets and and uh, you know participate in the financial markets in in ways that you know draw them great wealth. But at the end of the day, many of these people, 15 years into this, so you got to realize these are probably people in their 40s, early 40s, that are waking up every day saying, "What impact am I having? What difference is this making? Why I, this money alone isn't going to make my life any better?" And so that is a part of the consciousness that's changing. Another part of the consciousness is changing is that it's just simply not normal that people go to work hating their jobs. It's simply not normal that we manage people in ways that deplete people, lead to depression, lead to sadness, lead to uh, anxiety, lead to illness. I know this sounds overwrought, 
but it's true. You know, there's just so much evidence, and I've written about this extensively in many, many articles about how what we do to people at work translates into a, a disease and an unhappiness that just shouldn't be when you realize how much time we commit to work. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. We got, yeah, we've, got, we've got a good chat to have here, Mark. There's, there's a lot to unpick here. What I'd like to do is just, just, <laughs> just, just go back in time a little bit, if I can, to your, to your education, actually, because I find it really interesting. I'd like to sort of understand where this, you know, this passion around the hearts come from. Because you actually, you're, you did your degree in Eng, uh, English-American literature, I believe. I did. My undergraduate degree was in English-American literature, and uh, honestly, my education around this and why this is my life's work it really owes to um, my upbringing, and uh, so I'll kind of get you into the college experience because that was truly formative, uh, but the, the big picture is that I my, lost my mom when I was very young, and I grew up with a father who was deeply psychologically abusive, and really somebody who was almost determined to destroy myself, so my, my sense of well-being. And he did a particularly good job of that. And uh, when I was, right after I graduated from high school, my father then kicked me out of the house, and that was the end of our relationship for the next 15 years until he passed away. And didn't go back for you know Christmas, didn't go back for a birthday, only saw him three or four times, and um, for those next 15 years. And, but in that process, he had really kind of crippled me. He had crippled my belief in myself and my, my self-confidence. And, and nevertheless, he had taught me that I would, he really truly taught me that I was going to be a failure in life, that in his language, I would never amount to anything. And so in going to college, it was this binary question in my mind, which was that if I didn't graduate, if I didn't go to a good school and get a good degree, that everything that he said about me would have been true. Mm -hmm. So when I went to school, um, I, I just had this inclination that I needed to learn broadly about the world more than you know getting an accounting degree. And so I went to the University of California at San Diego, which is today ranked one of the top 10 uh, public schools in America. And I got a very rigorous education, but in the process had to figure out how to survive and how to survive financially, how to make this all happen and not quit and not give up despite, you know, not just the academic challenges, but the life challenges of just being alone in the world. And so when I got to the end of my, my years in college, uh, I had the perspective that people around me, my, my fellow students, had a huge advantage, not just by having a place to go on Thanksgiving, but to have somebody that loved them, that cared about them, that supported them, that nurtured them, that, you know, that, that encouraged them and picked them up when they didn't do well on a test or didn't do well in a class, you, you, you understand. And so what I started to realize was that um, I missed out on things that would have influenced me to have been even more successful in my life at that time. And so for reasons that I still don't really understand, although I think it owes to you know, my purpose and why I'm here on this planet, I made a pivot. When I started managing people, I made an unconscious decision to give people everything that I always wanted and didn't get in terms of that support. 
And so it was in my 40s, honestly, Gary, that somebody pointed out to me that I had managed very differently, always managed very differently. And I'd always gotten great results. I was constantly getting promoted and every team that I managed was thriving. And so I never really questioned why I led the way I did or how I did. But when she called it out, I realized that she was right. I could see the manipulation and the fear motivations that many of my peer re- peers were using to motivate their people. And I could have a sort of a big picture sense that I was doing it differently, but that's all I understood. And to use your language that you used a minute ago, to pick it apart, I realized, oh my God, I have been influenced to lead people in a way that was tied to my upbringing. That it was, that was almost like I was put on this planet to have that shitty upbringing as somebody once described it in order for me to get the understanding of what it is that people deeply need in order to thrive and perform well. And so in my last role before I left to, to write the book, I managed um, a couple of thousand stockbrokers. These are people that, you know, that depend upon sales in order to make money. They don't earn a dollar unless they have a sale. And people told me, oh, this is never going to work with those guys. Well, I managed, you know, a couple thousand of them in my first year. We had record revenue, record profit, and I was named leader of the year. In a world, in an environment, honestly, I have all the licenses, but I've never sold a single stock in my life. What I know how to do is to lead people. And so what I've gone on to do is to say, I've refined my understanding of this. I've proved this through a lifetime of managing people in the dog-eat-dog world of financial services. And nobody can tell me that this doesn't work. Nobody can tell me that this is soft and weak. Nobody can say to me, you know, that's not going to work in my industry because I've heard it all. And I, so I had this confidence. I had this assurance. I had this knowingness that this is essential to not only human thriving, but organizational thriving. Oh, my God. My, it's, it's such an amazing <laughs> response, Mark. And I have to say, first of all, you know, this, this podcast, as you know, is called Value Through Runnability. Thank you so much for sharing your origin story, because I think it really brings to life the, you know, the power of you know, being vulnerable and leaning in and being aware of your story and how it you know, advises you on your journey throughout work, through life, through relationships, because I just love this message that you're giving us that, you know, by leading with heart, by being leading with your humanity, record sales, record profit, leader of the year, and all by being a human being and not a tyrant, you know, there's nothing more compelling, Mark. I, you know, what, what I believe feelings motivate us, right? And so I had somebody tell me, because I, I had worked most of my life in the financial services side of retail banking, you know, the branches where you go in and get a loan and deposits and so forth. I used to run a big, big group of those. And when they asked me to go into the investment world, obviously I had no background in that, but they said, we think, we, we think you could actually do this. So I went out and got all my licenses. And so I had the ability to manage the business. I just didn't have a history of running that business. And the people who were now reporting to me were all people who, not only aspired to the role that I was given, but also had spent their entire careers managing financial brokers, right? Stock brokers and so forth. And their advice to me was, you're going to have to change how you manage. This is never going to work. 
the way you manage the people in retail banking isn't going to work in investments. And I said, why do you think that? And they said, well, these people, they just want to be left alone. They just want to be making money. They don't want to be influenced in any other way. So we just let them do what they do. So I said, okay, I fundamentally disagree with you, um, but I hear what you're saying. So um, I got on the plane and started going all over the country and meeting with the top 25 brokers. And what did I find out? I said, what can I do? If I could do one thing to help you, what would it be? Coach me, teach me, train me, show me that I matter to you. Show me that you value me. I'm one of your top producers and nobody even seems to know it except once a year when we have a little recognition trip. It's like, what are you doing for me? How do, I, how do you see me fitting in? It was, it was, these, it was saddening. It was, they, they had been neglected for so long because of this misunderstanding of what people need. So I said to him, I said, well, then I'm going to give you everything you ask for because it's easy to give you what you ask for. So we started to give them special coaching, special training. We brought people in for these seminars and made sure that they were, you know, ahead of the curve in terms of where the markets were going. And this is what happened is that people responded instinctively to this. It wasn't as if they made an intellectual decision to say, hey, this guy is helping me, so I'm going to help him. It's instinctive. It, we're all human. We reciprocate this way when people care about us. And so, you know, it was sort of like this fantastic opportunity for me to prove without knowing, by the way, I had no idea I was going to go on to write the book. I thought this is where my career was going to go and I was just going to continue to do this. But as I reflect on it, I realized what a gift that was because it gave me the sense that even these people who were, you know, making a pretty handsome living, by the way, by all standards, the, most of these people were making, you know, half a million dollars or more. Um, they were responding to the care, to the love that in deep down is what it was, what it really translates into that I was giving them. And they were grateful for it. They needed it. And it made their lives more enriched, but they ended up doing better work as a result of it. And what's really interesting, a few of the things, just to paraphrase, they're listening to us, you speak about being seen, you know, which, which I translate as belonging, Mark, you know, feeling that you do belong, that you matter, being coached. What I, what I find really interesting is this is, if you look at sort of right brain, left brain, people aren't, do you think that there's something around language which can be a challenge in leading from the heart? Is there, what sort of challenges do you find if you're trying to explain your, you know, your approach um, to leadership to maybe someone that is more fear-based or someone that sort of gets it, Mark, but is struggling to sort of walk over the bridge towards leading with, leading with love and leading with heart? What's, what sort of messages do you give them? I'm so grateful for this question, um, honestly, because, um, you know, your podcast, Gary, is about things like, vulnerability and courage and um and even you know mindset and i think that um i had to make a decision so here's the story when my book was coming out i had really come to the conclusion that everything that i had been doing in my career in in inspiring people to do great work which is the bottom line of leadership, right? This, is, this isn't just about being a nice person. This is about getting performance, which I always did. And so um, it boiled down to the heart. And so I had paid a woman a lot of money, many, many thousands of dollars to sort of construct a marketing strategy for me as my book was coming out. 
And I won't use the language she used, but she absolutely stunned me when she said, I'll give you a hint. She said, Mark, I have two strategies for you. One you're not going to like, and I'm just going to tell you right out of the gate, you will effing fail if you continue to use the expression lead from the heart. In fact, you can never use the word heart again when you're talking about your work. And the, what she was saying, Gary, is that the heart, that word heart in the context of management and business is kryptonite. It's the worst thing you could possibly say because we fundamentally believe that it's going to, it's going to undermine the leadership leader's effectiveness. You get too close to people and they're going to, they're going to manipulate you and take advantage of you. They're not going to drive performance, which is completely untrue. But what she was telling me was you're at a crossroads, my friend. And if you continue to use this word heart, you're going to be punished for it. So to your point around vulnerability, I was punished for it because people heard it and many people in business just goes, oh yeah, I mean, I had a speaking, I have a speaking uh, agent and he said, he goes, I can't tell you the number of times you were number, number one or number two on their list to have you come in and speak. And then at the last minute they picked the other person and I said, why? And they said, because they're afraid you're going to come in and sing Kumbaya. You know, they, they, they think it's going to be this mess. And so I had to make a decision, Gary, which is, do I, you know, do I suddenly say I'm all about killer engagement or do I own the language and wait for the world to come my way? And that's the choice that I made. And so, as you said at the beginning, you know, I'm delighted to see that, you know, that people are wearing down a little bit and getting a little bit broader minded here, because really what we're talking about is the understanding that if we are humane, if we treat people humanely, I, I hear a lot of people talking about, let's be more human. I'm saying we need to be more humane, which is the most positive aspects of humanity. It's caring, it's nurturing, it's supporting, it's valuing, it's making people know that their work matters, it's appreciating, it's all of these kinds of things, which, you know, the other thing is I think many people think that this is a metaphor that the heart is this sort of you know, metaphor for what I'm talking about. I'm talking about literally. The heart and the mind are connected. Feelings and emotions drive human behavior and the heart feels that. And so when we think about, if you describe humanity in one word, most people come up with the word heart, but then we ask them, what, how does that fit in business? And it gets all blurry to people. And I'm saying, take the blur out. Just accept that this is what we are all about and we thrive when we are supported and we don't thrive when we're managed by fear and intimidation, you get great results from that, but it's very short lived. Ultimately people end up resenting you or they're not going to stay with you. And if you care about people from an authentic, genuine point of view, you're going to get greater performance in a sustained way. Uh, it, it all resonates so much with me. What, I, what, what I'd like to, if I may ask you, Mark, is that, that that point at which you were starting to lose those gigs because, you know, your clients were, were getting afraid. What, what was it for you in that moment that helped you make that stand and just went, no, this is, this is what I'm about. This is what I believe in. What, what was going on for you there? What sort of emotions, what sort of feelings were you having at that time? You're asking some pretty, pretty powerful questions. Um, I had to take the leap of faith, to be honest with you. And, and I've had um, some people in my life who, um, I, I'll just say it this way, I couldn't have done it without some great supporters, people telling me, this is who you are, this is what, you, what you're here to do, and you can't forfeit that. There was a knowingness that I had that 
I wasn't going to be the killer engagement guy. I'm the lead from the heart guy because that's the truth of it. Um, I, uh, I'll tell you a cool story. Spencer Johnson, who was the genius behind the One Minute man Manager and also uh, Who Moved My Cheese, mm -hmm. which I think sold like 50 million copies. Um, before he died, we were having a conversation and he had read my book and he knew what I was up against, knew what the challenges were. And he said, he goes, um, Mark, I want to tell you, he goes, you're going to succeed. And you're going to succeed and it might take you some time. But the reason you're going to succeed is because what you're speaking about is truth. And I don't, I don't know that anybody had a more profound impact on me in terms of just hitting me right in the heart with the validation that I needed. Other people behind the scenes, friends of mine um, who, and, and family who just said, if you can't see that from the very minute you came on this planet, that the sequence of events that you have had in your life all add up to you being this person, then you're, <laughs> you're missing something pretty big. So I just had to wait for the world to kind of move in my direction. And I'll tell you, it's been a, it's been a painful journey in many cases. When you hear that a company didn't pick you because they completely misrepresented or misinterpreted what you're all about, that, that, that gets painful sometimes. Mm -hmm. But people, so that's the idea of the podcast. So that people can hear me and they go, oh, he's not such a nut after all. He's not a crazy person. <laughs> he's like, right? And uh, same with the articles. You know, I've, I've, I've written like 25 different articles for Fast Company and many for LinkedIn and other, other places. All of it with the intention of having people read them and go, oh my God, like, could this be true? Is this right? You know, so that people can come to it on their own. For this for this movement to work, it has to be about people self-discovering and for them to have their own epiphany where they go, this is right. And it's not about me. It's about them. It's about them feeling like I'm going to get greater results from the people that I manage because I'm doing this. Not because anybody ever told me, but because I know in my heart that this is the best way to go about it. Oh, that's... <laughs> Oh, for those that listen to this podcast re regularly, I have some amazing guests like you, Mark, and my, my little hair's going end, and it's happening again with you today. <laughs> the, 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 the thing that's really, really jumping out to me is you, you just spoke about how people have to find this knowing for themselves. And I think it's so powerful because you can't teach someone else to know something. You can only know it yourself. You can learn something from someone else, but you can't know it without doing it, doing it yourself. Is, is that something you'd agree or challenge, just out of interest? No, I'm completely in agreement with you. And so uh, the point is, is to, to, to validate what you just said, it's been a pro progression. It's been a progression of, of, of years to um, lay out an understanding. In other words, if, if you come to an understanding about something that takes you a lifetime to come to, you can't expect that somebody's going to read one article and go, oh, okay, I need to change. That's not who we are. We resist change. We fight change. We, we battle in our minds. Do we really believe this? Is that really true? And so it has to be this evolution. And so you have to meet people where they are and help them get where you want them to get to. And that's what my mission is. You know, it's like when people resonate with my work and, you know, either through the podcast or through the book, um, I'll, and, and of course the articles, um, I, 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 that's what, that's what renews me. That's what gives me the courage to keep doing this and keep speaking about it. I'll tell you a really cool thing. 
Um, my book is being taught in eight American universities and some small college in Ireland, by the way. But um, in, in a couple of these universities, I really participate with the students. And there's a university, Northern Arizona University in the United States, um, where I actually read the students' work. And you look at these guys, and most of these students aren't, you know, just fresh out of high school. They've, they have some work experience. They're going to work while they're going to college. And they're, they just get it. They're just like, hey, this is the future. There's no question. We've got to do it this way. I've already had a taste of the way you, you guys have done this in the past, and it's not working for me. There's sort of this just natural, instinctive response from people who are 23, 24 years old. Um, maybe 25, even 26. They're in, still in their early parts of their career, but they're just instinctively saying, this is it. This is what we got to do. We get, and it's wonderful. There's no, oh, man, I'm not so sure. We, you know, that's not the way I grew up. I had managers that treated me like crap, and I had to stick around, and maybe the millennials should have to do the same thing. These guys are saying, nope, we want no part of the old way. And that totally encourages me. That's <laughs> That's absolutely amazing. I, I, I find it really fascinating. I think, you know, the, the topic of change, Mark, I, I, I find really intriguing because I've been doing quite a lot of reading myself around complex adaptive systems. And it's really weird because we're sort of inherently as a human race, from my understanding, you know, naturally, we would actually be okay with change. Like, as, in, as in like natural systems, you know, we come from nature. It's that we've been so mechanized over the last 150 years not to deal with change that we're sort of i think that's a lot of the barrier is actually that we we're actually okay with it if we're allowed to find our own way through it but when you're trying to force a system or force you to be part of a system where you can't be flexible you can't be adaptive that stops people feeling they are able to change i don't know if that's again was that saying a challenge or is that something that resonates i don't yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I do think that we resist change and we resist change because we take it as a threat. And so um, the reason we take it as a threat goes back to, you know, I mean, thousands of years ago, you know, human beings were, were, were poised to be eaten. And so anything that changes in our environment is perceived as a threat. And so what I have found, interestingly, in managing people through change is that if you allow them to express their feelings, if you allow them to say, I'm afraid that I'm gonna lose my job or I'm gonna afraid that by making this change that I'm not gonna be seen as the star that I always was or I'm afraid I'm gonna be left behind or you're gonna lay me off because I can't get there fast enough. All of those kinds of things. Um, what typically happens is, is we go up and we go, look, we're going to be introducing these changes. It's going to be able to drive us more profit for our shareholders or our customers are going to get the product faster. And the people you're talking to are sitting in the room going, what about me? Like, what's that going to do to me? Am I going to lose my job? Am I going to make less money? Am I? It's all the fantasies that people could possibly conjure. And so I was just coaching somebody the other day on they're introducing a new system and everybody's afraid they're not going to be able to learn the new system. So I said, before you do the training, bring them in a day before and talk to them about what they're afraid of, what it is, and then promise them that you're going to match up to whatever their needs are. And he said, you know, we did that 
and people expressed, you know, that they were concerned that they didn't have enough time to learn the system and that people were going to be, you know, requiring them to be the experts and they weren't the experts yet. And that made them feel really vulnerable. And so the manager just said, look, I'm going to be out there on the floor with you. I'm going to be coaching you. You're going to have the support. You're going to get great training. You're going to feel much better when this is over with. I hear what you're saying. We're going to make sure you feel really good. You understand the word feeling. He kept saying feeling, feeling, feeling. And uh, so he spoke my language and ultimately um, they had this like seamless transition. It was just like, whatever, <laughs> we're done. You know, it was hugely successful where it became a non-event all because they addressed the feelings of people up front. We don't do this in business. We just move forward and just think people are just going to get on board. That's not where human beings are. We resist it. We, re we fight it. And in the case of leading from the heart, you know, the big part of view here is that we've been managing people in an oppressive way for a really long time, largely because we could. Um, goes back to the Industrial Revolution when basically, you know, the owners of businesses had all the cards. And so they could pay people as little as possible, squeeze as much out of them as possible, and threaten them that if they didn't perform the way they wanted them, that they were going to lose their job. We have somebody sitting in the other room that wants your chair. And so we've always believed that we could exploit them. And there are organizations that continue to believe that um, in America and elsewhere that continue to think that taking advantage of employees is the greatest way of driving shareholder profit. A shareholder return and profit and it's just simply not true yeah and th thankfully you and i both know they uh they, they like many other companies in the uh, fortune 500 and the uk FTSE will find themselves dropping out the index pretty fast um in the next yeah, decade, I, mean, I, think. <laughs> I mean there's some companies in america that are fighting for their i mean they, they seem to be doing well and they're big big companies that you know don't bother calling out but there's one major retailer in america that has exploited people with um with impunity for at least 25 years. Um, and ironically, the founder of the company was caring, nurturing, supportive. And after he passed away, the company made the decision that it was gonna pass on low, you know, on, on low prices by doing it off the backs of people. And they are now fighting to survive and to compete with the Amazons in the world. And the way they're doing it suddenly is to um, enrich the lives of employees. They're still underpaying people but they're paying them substantially more than they ever have. They're doing more training. They're doing more recognition. So they're moving into this because they have to. Yeah. And interestingly, you know, I, I used to think that, that companies and CEOs would be enlightened and they'd say, we've got to do this. And the sad truth is that most CEOs haven't done this instinctively. What they're doing is they're responding competitively. So the markets are forcing them to become more heart-driven than uh, any you know, natural inclination, which is a big disappointment to me. But if that's how we get there, I'm fine with that too. No, awesome. I'm going to play a bit of the devil's advocate just because I think it's good for, for a sense of balance. If, if, I, if I play the role of someone that's more fear-based, Mark, and I'm really struggling, you know, I'm trying to find a reason not to lead with heart. You know, what would, you know, is there any, is there any downside in your opinion from your research, from, from your experience the last decade plus that would point towards there are some potential downsides of leading from the heart? 
Um, you know, some people just sort of like always want to go to the worst case scenario, right? <laughs> so um, I'm not saying you do, but this 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 idea that this could backfire on you is is something that comes up very quickly. Before people have even tried it, it's like, well, that's going to blow up and backfire. And so there's sort of this instinctive idea that it, it's not going to work out in the end. And what I find is that the, the only real risk and i've never seen anybody like this so this is a theoretical example is that you become sort of a mom to people you know you become so caring and nurturing that you fail to hold people accountable for the results and so you know when i say lead from the heart i'm not saying lead from all the heart i'm saying we've historically always just led from the mind there is no heart in the way we manage so let's bring that back into balance. So you still have to hold people accountable and be demanding and expect that people are going to deliver whatever they're supposed to do for their jobs, right? You have to hold people for performance. Um, so in the rare occasion where you have a manager who's really good at the heart but can't drive performance, well, that person's not going to succeed any more than somebody who can drive performance out of fear and, motive and, and you know fear and intimidation and has no heart in terms of caring for people. Either way, it's going to backfire. No, th thank you for sharing that. That, that. that totally resonates. And I just want to reinforce this leading with the heart versus leading with fear. So I've been involved in a project over the last few years, Mark, where we went from, I wouldn't say pure fear, but certainly a lot of rear view mirror, you know, why doesn't this work, justification basis, through to a much yeah. more of a collaborative um, focus on personal development, focusing on the process and the journey rather than just the outcome. And here's some numbers for you. Over 40% increase in sales and over a 40% increase in margins over three years. And nothing else changed apart from how we led the team. Like for like, ceteris paribus comparison. So this stuff does deliver results. I just wanted to make sure anyone listening to this get, is really, really clear on that. You know, this is not a nice thing to do. It's good for the humans, but it also drives better outcomes. I mean, you know, the interesting thing is that, you know, if, if people were to ask me, you know, if you ask people who used to work for me, what's one word to describe Mark C. Crowley? You would say, well, it's got to be hard, right? He's the hard guy. But the word that I think would most, and I've never done this, but I'm almost convinced that most people would go, he's probably the most demanding manager I've ever had. And that sort of sounds like, how could that be, right? That doesn't sound like it's aligned to hard. But where, what, what happens is that when you support people, when you give them everything that they need, when you support their needs in the way that I was, where people felt safe with me, they knew that I had their best interest at heart, that I was growing them, that I was giving them opportunities to, to demonstrate their skill set, right? All the, to appreciate, recognize, make sure people went home on Friday night not fearing that they, they didn't know where they stood with their manager, you know, that they could just know I have a great thing going on here. When you create that environment for people, I'm giving people so much more than anybody else would. I used to say, hey, we're not just going to do average work here. It's like if we have a team that's like fully energized and fully actualized, then let's go nail this. So we would set ridiculously high goals. And I don't mean this in an oppressive way. We would just to collectively say, if the company is expecting X from us, if that looks like good work, let's, let's do X times 40% more. And at first, people were like, well, what do we need to do that for? Well, because it's much more satisfying to do great work than it is to just do average and good work. 
right? There's great satisfaction that comes with that. But if you align rewards to that, then people were being financially rewarded for it. And so they're going to work feeling like everything that I need in my life is being met. I have a boss that loves me, cares about me and supports me. I'm doing great work and I'm being rewarded for it. That's the trifecta. So it, it really translates into everything you just described. I mean, there's no surprise to me that organizations, just by changing how they lead, are going to get this huge leap in performance because this is what people are desperate for. Oh, it's amazing. Well, look, as we start to look to wrap up, I'd like to ask you, you shared a really great example of, of something that's, you know, that shift within your university um, experience with these young people. Is there anything else for you, Mark, in t- that is who or what is inspiring you the most right now? Is there something else going on that's really inspiring you? It could be a person. It could just be a movement. Um. I, this is a sort of an interesting question. I, I, I'm going to give it to um, Deepak Chopra, which might sound a little strange, but he created a meditation program several years ago. And I've never been someone who meditated before. Um, but, you know, if you go back to my childhood, you know, it, 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 no matter how much work you do on knowing thyself, and healing, you know, the wounds of how we grew up. And, and I think every one of us listening has wounds from how we grew up, un, un, unfortunately. But the more work that I did on that, you know, when when you sit down with a blank page um, or, you know, or trying to communicate in a meaningful way, you still have a lot of noise in your mind saying, at least, you know, my mind, you can't do this, this isn't going to be any good. And so um, what I have found that, you know, through 20 minutes of meditation that he is guided through this program that he created with Oprah Winfrey. Um, It might sound cheesy to some people, but it was life changing for me. Um, honestly, because what it does is it clears my mind, it stops the noise and allows me to bring out my best work. So um, I would encourage people to look into this because it's, uh, they're not doing it already. If they are doing it already, I'm sure it's just huge validation, but meditation has been really, really helpful for me. Oh, great. How can people reach out to you? What's the best ways to reach you, Mark, uh, if people want to follow up the conversation or make contact with you? So my, you can remember me in two ways, leadfromtheheart.com or markccrowley.com. Uh, both of those roads take you to the same place. I'm on Twitter at Mark C. Crowley. I'm on LinkedIn at Mark C. Crowley. Um, and my book is Lead from the Heart, Transformational Leadership for the 21st Century. And you can find that on Amazon all around the world. That's great. Well, I'll make sure this is all uh, added to the show notes. You've been an absolute joy, Mark. I just want to li- let you have the, have the last word for anybody that's listening. If there's anything you'd like to share just, uh, just before we go. Um, thank you. I, you know, I, I think through the course of my whole life, Gary, that I've proved that you can lead this way and get great performance. And uh, I think there's enough evidence, just what you just described in your own experience, in your own company, that if you just listen to that and just trust that, hey, what if, so if you're sitting there still cynical about this or skeptical about this, I'm more hoping that it's that than the former, that if you just try it, take, take, just start caring about a couple of people and see what their response is to you and see it in comparison to their performance pre- previous and to their, their performance in relationship to others. 
And I think, you know, that just, it's not going to take much people. It's like watering and fertilizing a plant. All of a sudden you're like, wow, I had no idea it could grow like that. And that's kind of what I found with people. That's absolutely, that's a beautiful way to finish. Mark, you've been an absolute joy, really. Thank you so much for sparing the time today. Really appreciated it. Uh, my joy as well, Gary. Thank you so very much. Take care. All the best. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. Hi there, just Gary Turner, your Value Through Vulnerability host, just wrapping up this amazing conversation with Mark C. Crowley. Just took so, so much away from, from this discussion. But I think one of the, the, the big things that resonated with me was that the fact that Mark paid thousands of dollars to a, a marketing consultant who pretty much told him that he would be effing fail, he would effing fail if he continued to use the expression heart, which just shows you how judgmental uh, some people can be, even those that are meant to be leading a profession. But I really respect Mark and how he stood fast with the support of those around him to his deep-seated beliefs and indeed what his heart was telling him was his purpose. I also enjoyed Mark talking about the fact that for this movement to work, it has to be about self-discovery. It's not about him. It's not about other practitioners like myself or anybody else that may believe in leading with the heart. People have to find it for themselves. And that's certainly a journey I've been on personally over the last three years of self-discovery, of awakening to the innate potential that sits within me and indeed that sits within all of us. You know, until we see it in ourselves, until we allow ourselves to wake up, um, you know, it doesn't matter how many self-development podcasts or courses we put ourselves on, we've got to do the work for ourselves with the support of others. So I thought that's a really powerful message. I also think it's really interesting to hear Mark talking about that his life's been a progression, this progression to lead with heart no, it's a progression of years to lay out an understanding. And to quote Mark, if you come to an understanding about something that takes a lifetime to come to, you cannot expect someone else to wake up to that in just one article. And I think how often in, 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 in the world of work and indeed in our own lives are we looking for that magic bullet? Um, how often are we looking for something that will turn the tide for us in the moment? And whilst there's many things that can turn the tide, like our own thinking in the moment, you know, if we're looking for something outside of us, to help with that, uh, that journey, to be an aperture for us to shift. You know, it's, it's never going to happen because ultimately we've got to do it for ourselves. And I think that's just a, a really common theme that's coming up for me on this podcast, particularly as it, with it being so deeply human-centered, the need for us to do the inner work is absolutely fundamental for us in order to, uh, to live the best possible life and indeed lead with heart and to make the biggest contribution. So, so there's so much more in this, but I'm going to go quiet now. I'm gonna let you reflect. Please take a minute to stop, get present, and to allow the realizations and insights to come up for you after this very rich conversation with Mark C. Crowley. Uh, do go out and buy his book, Lead from the Heart, listen to his podcast. It really is an excellent podcast. And we do hope that you connect with us and uh, offer feedback in whichever way you feel um, able to do so. So until the next Value Through Vulnerability podcast, my name's been Gary Turner. You can find me at Gary Turner Zero. That's Gary with two R's on Twitter. Find me via LinkedIn or at thelisteningorganisation.co.uk. And indeed, with heart being very closely linked to courage, if you go to the havecourageoneword.co.uk website, input your email address, and you'll get seven free interviews from myself, including that heart-based leader, Claude Silver, as well, is one of those seven interviews. So have a wonderful day and really hope that you'll join us on the next podcast. Thanks very much. Mm -hmm.